Welcome to the Soil and Roots Podcast. I'm Brian Fisher, and this is episode 54, Another Brick in the Wall. Today we begin our excavation of the last key element of our spiritual formation, and that's instruction. Let's back up for a minute and just get our bearings. Many people in the West have the sense of being lonely or isolated or disconnected from God and other people, maybe themselves, creation. Certainly this is true for people who aren't following Jesus, but it's also true for many people who do. Our church life may be great, but many of us are wondering if there is something more to the Christian life than a weekly worship event, some private devotions, a Bible study, something deeper, something almost intangible. The Bible talks about this peace that passes understanding and abiding with God, the abundant life, joy in the midst of suffering, conquering sin, a deep love for God, for self, for neighbor, loving our enemy, a life without anxiety, a life without fear. The Bible seems to paint a picture of life that's just so free, but that freedom seems really hard to grasp. Do I sense God's presence that deeply? Can I really conquer these lifelong habitual sins? Can I envision a life without fear? A life without anxiety? Let's face it, that type of life sounds more like an aspirational fantasy or like life in some monastery compared to the lives we often lead. And we tend to cover up this underlying sense that there's more to the Christian life with any of the innumerable distractions available to us today. Busyness, leisure, eating, exercise, running our kids around and living our lives through them. In darker periods, we struggle with various addictions, even the socially acceptable ones. Yet the yearning in our hearts remain. We long to know and we long to be known. And that longing tends to pop up in our heart view indicators, whether we want it to or not. In our thought life, our actions, our words how we use our time and money, our relationships, even our health. At Soil and Roots, we've been exploring this disconnect between what the Bible paints as the deep Christian life with what many of us actually experience. And we started off by digging into the concept of ideas, these concepts, assumptions, principles that govern us, but of which we're typically unaware. Now, admittedly, this exploration of ideas is not the normal approach to uncovering biblical reality in the human heart, And I admit it takes some time to get our arms and brains around them, but philosophers and theologians have been exploring ideas and their role in individuals and communities and nations, religions and cultures for a very long time. We may recognize some names such as Plato, Descartes, Nietzsche, Augustine, Aquinas, Kierkegaard, Calvin. American pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer commented on the depth and the power of ideas when he wrote, quote, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God, is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it's finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God, end quote. These ideas, these bedrock and somewhat mysterious things in our hearts play a huge role in how we relate, how we function, how we exist. And they're deeply tied to our relationship with God, 
Philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard taught that the journey of a disciple is the progressive transformation of these ideas. So there's a connection between this sense that there's more to the Christian life and the exploration of these hidden ideas. But because we tend to be so content with the surface things, we generally won't go exploring our spiritual journey to freedom and the presence and the power of these ideas unless we're whacked in the head with some sort of crisis. And even then, we're tempted to turn back and take it easy. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, quote, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, end quote. Ideas settle into nations, cultures, religions, and result in major social and cultural changes and paradigms. Part of our struggle to experience a deeper, more formative experience with Jesus is that we've been born into an era that struggles with three primary problems, all of which are the result of widespread, deeply impactful ideas. As you've probably heard, the three primary problems are the forgotten kingdom, the discipleship dilemma, and the formation gap. Over the last few hundred years, the West has so reduced, so minimized, so neutered the idea of Jesus, many people assume he just came to rescue individual persons from eternal punishment. So as long as we pray some kind of prayer or walk down the aisle at a service, we've punched our ticket to heaven and we're good to go. We'll check in with Jesus once in a while and we look forward to floating on some ethereal plane in a disembodied state with him for all eternity once we're dead. That actually sounds terribly boring. The idea of the grand narrative of the Bible is far more than our personal salvation. Jesus is the king of the entire cosmos. He has been given all authority to reign it. He is right now making all things new. He is right now putting all enemies under his feet. The prevailing, often unconscious idea in Christianity today is that the body and this world are both inherently bad and must be escaped. It's a rather odd idea, considering that God saw that his created world and human beings were good, in fact, very good. That's at least what Genesis tells us. It also raises the question that if both the body and the earth are bad, why did God come with a body to the earth in order to save it? Modern Christianity has forgotten the kingdom. When Jesus came, he announced to the darkness that his kingdom of light had come and that he was here to take his stuff back. All of his stuff. Because we've reduced the idea of Jesus to our own personal savior and are not sure how to embrace him as the reigning king of the cosmos, this can make our discipleship rather difficult. We've defined discipleship as the journey to become more like Jesus. In order to become more like someone else, we need to know the object and the subject. We need to know Jesus, and we also need to know ourselves. So it's vital that we embrace the entirety of of who Jesus is, not just the parts to which modern Christianity has reduced him. Otherwise, we aren't sure who we're supposed to become more like. And, although this isn't particularly popular right now, it's difficult to move ahead in our journey if we don't explore and dive into our own stories, into our own hearts. Sometimes we have to go backwards in order to go forwards. So we find ourselves in a dilemma, a discipleship dilemma. We desire to become more like Jesus, but we aren't sure who he is, and we aren't all that sure who we are. 
This dilemma is only compounded by the fact that human hearts need certain things in order to be formed. These five things were taken for granted for much of church history, but in our supposedly enlightened age, some of these formative elements have all but disappeared. If we genuinely desire to become more like Jesus, we may find ourselves in a gap, a formation gap. We simply don't have access to communities that are specifically designed to help form us into the image of Jesus. A human heart requires five elements in order to be formed more like someone else. Time, habit, community, intimacy, and instruction. Other five-element formative communities are very common in our lives today, but just not in our spiritual formation. However, these five-element communities are precisely what Jesus and the early church modeled. That's really the essence of what Soil and Roots is all about, restoring New Testament discipleship through the formation and support of these special communities that Jesus and his followers modeled. We call them greenhouses. A greenhouse is a solution to all three of the primary problems. In them, we rediscover the kingdom, we solve the discipleship dilemma, and we fill the formation gap. We journey together to align our ideas with God's and in the process, experience the depth, the freedom that the Christian life promises. As we've noted, modern Christianity tends to assume that we're formed primarily through this last element, instruction. It's the idea that human beings are basically brains on sticks. That if we just hear enough biblical truth, we'll eventually become more like Jesus. And we should note, biblical instruction is very important. However, in our modern age, we have drastically overemphasized its importance in disciple-making. Or perhaps more precisely, the other formative elements of time and habit, community and intimacy have slowly disappeared from culture, and so instruction is just the last thing standing. In most Protestant churches, the assumed pinnacle of our spiritual formation is the weekly sermon. Most church buildings and architecture, budget, staff, personnel, worship songs are built around the Sunday sermon. Nowadays, sermons are available worldwide online within minutes of being delivered and often make their way into books and other media forms. And the sermon is generally an instructional monologue. If we still have Sunday schools, those are instructive. Most small group programs are based around studying the Bible or some other related book. Those are instructive. The overwhelming majority of adult church groups today are based on biblical instruction. They form the major rhythms of most churches. We might volunteer in other service opportunities or missions work, but even those tend to have strong instructional overtones. It's funny because we don't emphasize instruction so strongly in other formative environments. No one expects a civilian to be turned into a soldier by simply sitting in a classroom. No one expects a toddler to be formed into a healthy, loving adult by just listening to a weekly lecture from their parents. No one expects a gifted athlete to be formed into an NFL star by just teaching him the rules of football or handing him a playbook. We intuitively know that a civilian needs a mentor, a squad, hands-on, habitual experience and relationship in order to become a successful soldier. An immersive community is essential to making good soldiers. Every child needs affection, attunement, relationship, predictability, security, a certain environment in order to flourish. In other words, she needs an immersive community in order to be formed. 
And any professional athlete will tell you their formation into a star didn't happen because of sitting in a classroom, but because of relentless habits and caring coaches and selfless teammates. So let's dig into this last key element of instruction. Christians yearn for a deeper understanding of their faith, for a profound relationship with Jesus, for this life of freedom and abiding in him. We may dream about what a life without anxiety, without fear, without worrying about money looks like. Or, more positively, what a constant sense of God's presence and two-way communication with him might look like. A life consumed with God and fully directed by the Holy Spirit. Over the last 2,000 years of the church, we now find ourselves at a crossroads. We're a generation with an overwhelming amount of information about the spiritual life but we don't seem to have the guidance of how to truly live it. This absence leads to spiritual disarray, disillusionment, which presents our first question. If we have an overabundance of Christian information, where is a sense of disconnection and wondering about a lack of depth of our journey coming from? I found a potential answer in my research, though it's an answer that may not be particularly popular or certainly comforting. A pastor friend of mine referred me to a book called The Critical Journey, the first edition of which was published back in the 80s. The authors, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich, suggested that our journey of spiritual formation of discipleship can actually be broken down into six stages. That's not that we move through these stages in a line. We may bounce in between a few or skip one or two. We may spend years in just one stage, but here they are. Stage one is a recognition of God, okay? This is when we become a Christian, or at least we become aware of God. They call stage two the life of discipleship. Now, frankly, I wish the authors had chosen a different name for this stage because they basically mean a time of learning, just learning. We come to know God, and then we take time to get to know more about him. So this entails things like Bible studies and lectures and classes and maybe being mentored and so on. Stage three is the productive life. This is when we start to give back. We begin to serve. Maybe it's through volunteering at church or working in the nursery or mentoring others or going on missions, trips. We know God. We know more about God. And now we're ready to share God with others through a myriad of opportunities. So far, we all recognize these three phases. Many of our stories involve us coming to Christ, joining a community of faith, learning more about him, and then taking on some part of a serving role in some capacity. Now, candidly, when I first read the book, I wondered what phases might be beyond these first three. I thought the first three was all there was. We're introduced to God, we learn about God, and then we go serve God. Well, I was very wrong. Stage four is called the inward journey. Quote, It almost always comes as an unsettling experience, yet results in healing for those who continue through it. Until now, our journey has had an external dimension to it. Our life of faith was more visible, more outwardly oriented, even though things certainly were happening inside us. At this stage, we face abrupt change to almost the opposite mode. It's a mode of questioning, exploring, falling apart, doubting, dancing around the real issues, sinking in uncertainty, and indulging in self-centeredness, end quote. Near the end of this stage four, the inward journey, is what they call the wall. St. John of the Cross called this type of experience the dark night of the soul. Quote, The wall represents the place where another layer of transformation occurs, and a renewed life of faith begins for those who feel called and have the courage to move into it. 
This experience is perhaps the most poignant example of mystery in the whole journey of faith. Experiencing the wall is both frightening and unpredictable, end quote. They cite some biblical examples of the wall to give us some context. So Jonah in the belly of the whale, Job in the midst of his illness, Elijah when he hid in the cave, Sarah being barren for so long and finally giving up and giving Hannah to her husband. The wall is often brought on by some sort of crisis, a job loss, a cancer diagnosis, a death in the family, divorce, betrayal, a move, wondering if our career or our ministry or our perspective is valid or right or honoring. When we hit the wall, we have a few options. We may press into it and engage in the struggle and the introspection it brings, or we may turn back and settle into a previous stage because we just aren't willing to dig beneath the surface. In some cases, a person simply abandons the faith altogether. They deconstruct. The wall is a pivotal part of our journey because it often causes us to revisit the truths and the ideas we assumed when we were younger, and we discover God in new ways. We experience him more deeply, and that draws us into a more trusting relationship with him. We learn to surrender. As best as I can tell, I've stumbled into the wall twice in my life. The first time, I ignored it and turned back, making sure I was incredibly busy with my family and career. The second time, I pushed into it, more out of frustration than some sense of bravery. In many respects, I'm today still in the wall. After the wall comes stage five, which is the journey outward. And then stage six is what they call the life of love. If you've been listening to the podcast episodes in order, you know we've been wrestling with what a mature, intimate, Christian disciple actually looks like. Is it the supernaturally overpowered Christian, or the doctrinally accurate Christian, or the placid Christian? This last stage is the book's answer to that question. The authors maintain that a deep, abiding disciple of Jesus looks a lot like him, and is a lot like him. Their description of someone at stage six, this life of love, sounds somewhat paradoxical. Quote, At this stage, we reflect God to others in a world more clearly and consistently than we have ever thought possible. When we are at stage six, we have lost ourselves in the equation, and at the same time, we have truly found ourselves. We are selfless. This factor allows us to do the most extraordinary things. We may figuratively wash other people's feet or give our very lives in the service of God. We are at peace with ourselves, fully conscious of being the person God has created us to be. Obedience comes very naturally without deliberation because we are so immersed in God's work. End quote. They list other characteristics, wisdom gained from life's struggles, compassionate living for others, including our enemies, detachment from things and stress that make the case that someone living in stage six may appear strange to the rest of us. They just aren't trying to perform or accumulate much of anything. They may appear slow. They're so unconcerned with things that concern us, we just aren't quite sure what to do with them. Now, we could spend a whole lot of time exploring these six stages, though you might just pick up the book and dig around it in your greenhouse. But here's the point. Well, all the instruction available to us today in our churches, institutions, books, videos, courses, how much of it is designed to help us move through all six stages? How much of the instruction we receive helps us understand it's okay to enter stage four, the inward journey, 
where we purposefully engage our stories, our hearts, our theology, and we ask questions, we express doubts, or we even take a break from our normal Christian habits. In stage four, we may begin to question why we go to church at all, or whether there's more to our experience with God than the rituals and the rhythms we've relied on for so long. Do our churches make room for this stage? Do they have communities that invite us to work through it together? How much of the instruction we receive invites us to engage the wall? Are we taught how to love others who are currently in the wall? John Stone Street often refers to the Romans 828 grenade, meaning our common Christian reaction to trial or struggle or crisis is to immediately remind everyone that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, that's true, though it may not be helpful at all to someone currently living in the wall. Do our churches instruct us to anticipate the wall, to embrace it? Or is the vast majority of available instruction geared to stages one to three, being introduced to God, basic Bible knowledge, and then moving into some sort of service? Stage four is about an intentional look inward at our stories, at our pasts. How often does that show up in our instruction? And if the wall is characterized by doubts and questions, perhaps even some undoing of ideas that we had previously taken for granted, is that even allowed in our church communities? I was talking about these six stages to a pastor friend of mine who had been in ministry for a few decades. So I asked him, in your years of ministry, how often did you see a church teach on stages four through six? Almost never, he replied. Why not, I said. He sighed, and then he said, well, because churches can succeed financially without doing the hard work and making the commitment that stages four to six require. I then asked, well, then how do churches deal with people who are struggling with things like the wall? He replied, they don't, or they send them to counseling or some support group. We've explored that the Western church has overemphasized instruction as a formative element in our journey, yet if we, even on the surface agree that the Christian journey goes well beyond meeting Jesus and learning about him and volunteering for him, what instruction is available to us to help navigate these later, quite frankly, deeper stages of our formation? If the vision for our discipleship is to live in this stage six, this life of love, but in order to get there, we need to take a pass through the journey inward in the wall, what sort of instruction is available to help us walk through that journey? My pastor friend's comment about the fact that most churches no longer recognize or support disciples in stages four, five, and six because, you know, they're able to financially perpetuate themselves without doing so really bothered me. But it's hard to argue the point. These later stages, the journey inward, the wall, the journey outward, this life of love, all require a tremendous personal, if not one-on-one, -on -one, commitment. Large churches certainly can't go there. There are just too many people in the congregation evangelizing, teaching, providing volunteer opportunities, those can all happen at scale. Those are stages one through three. But exploring a person's story and sitting with them in their wall, exploring a life of love, these things aren't things to be accomplished in mass gatherings. They're time-consuming. They're messy. In fact, engaging in stages four to six may require a whole different mindset. That the goal of a church isn't to grow the number of people, it's to grow disciples. If I may, it's quality over quantity, or perhaps depth over width, or at least prioritizing depth over width. There may be a few other things in play here that stop churches from instructing us about the deeper, frankly harder, more personal stages of our formation. 
Colin Marshall and Tony Payne wrote a book for pastors. It's called The Trellis and the Vine. The trellis represents the administration, the business, the programs of a church. It's the structure necessary to support the work of the ministry. The vine represents the actual journey of making disciples. This is the interpersonal interaction, the teaching, the counseling, the transparent conversations over coffee, the time-consuming, hard, messy work of formation. Their concern is that, in many if not most churches, the trellis is consuming most of the energy and effort of the church. Running the operations, the buildings, the programs, has consumed the church and the actual vine work has taken a back seat. Quote, and that's the thing about trellis work, it tends to take over from vine work. Perhaps that's because trellis work is easier and less personally threatening. Vine work is personal, requires much prayer. Which is easier, to have a business meeting about the state of the carpet, or to have a difficult personal meeting where you need to rebuke a friend about his sinful behavior? End quote. They continue, The concentration on trellis work that is so common in many churches derives from an institutional view of Christian ministry. It is very possible for churches, Christian organizations, and whole denominations to be given over totally to maintaining their institutions. Indeed, it's not only possible, but routine. We explored this in some detail back in episode 12 called Supersize Me. The reality is that communities committed to genuine, deep discipleship leading to this stage six, this life of love, are very difficult to find in most church institutions today. Churches can financially support their budgets, their programs, and their structure of their ministries by purposefully stopping their discipleship efforts at stage three. And a church can scale quite large at that point. Church institutions, large and small, can become consumed by the trellis and neglect the vine by spending their time on denominational activities and committee meetings and conferences and events and not actually working one-on-one to make disciples who then go on to make more disciples. For many people, myself included, there comes a time when monologues and select Bible verses ripped out of context and the business of church just begin to lose their relevance. At some point, maybe it's in middle age, we realize that these rhythms certainly play a part in our formation, particularly in the beginning, but there really are deeper things of the faith, deeper parts of our story, deeper parts of our hearts, deeper questions for which the modern institutional church simply does not provide instruction or support. And in some cases, not even the permission. If true, the implications that we live in an age of overwhelming Christian instruction, yet we receive virtually no instruction on the deeper stages of our journey to become more like Jesus, well, they're extraordinary. If true, we're missing the deeper, richer, intangible, rock-solid experiences that the Bible actually promises. Perhaps we are quite comfortable with our mud pies. It really is a staggering premise, so how might we respond? Well, our first option is just to deny the premise. We can certainly claim that our deeper longings and my pastor friend and the book The Critical Journey are just wrong, and that as long as we're being instructed and serving, that is pretty much the expected endpoint of our discipleship journey. Our second option is to acknowledge the premise, but accept present reality for what it is. The idea of the abundant life, a life without lack, a life so consumed with God that we obey not because we have to, but because we delight to, really is more fantasy than practicality. It's entirely aspirational. We don't really expect to ever experience a life of love, this side of the afterlife. 
my guess is the vast majority of us sit in this response, this unconscious idea. A third option is to reach the wall and just give up. Again, the modern term for this is deconstruction, when a Christian hits the wall and receives little to no help and finally just gives up on the entire thing. No one is there to sit with them in the wall because no one has been instructed on what it is or how we're supposed to help. Some people remain Christian but call it quits on the institutional church. Their disenchantment becomes permanent and they just leave. These people are often castigated by folks still in the church because they're viewed as sinners, disobediently no longer meeting together. I've become quite tired of this criticism, primarily because it's just lazy. It asks no questions of the deeper reasons why someone would leave, and it asks no questions about the failure of our church institutions to make disciples beyond stage three. But lastly, we might accept the premise and press into the implications. If the path to becoming more like Jesus does, in fact, involve an inward journey, the wall, the outward journey, and most of our church institutions aren't set up to walk us through those later stages, what in fact can we do? Does our desire to truly become more like our king drive us to assess and explore and investigate and contemplate and question? Perhaps it's time we reconsider what we mean by instruction as a key element in our formation to become like Jesus. Someone recently asked me if I listed instruction as the last of the five key elements on purpose. It is on purpose. It's also on purpose that I list time as the first key element because modern Christians spend very little time on the most important formative journey of our lives. The biggest objection to starting or joining a greenhouse is a perceived lack of time. As we've explored, however, how we use time as a symptom, the results, the indicator of our heart condition. A lack of time is not the root. Anyhow, when considering these five element communities called greenhouses, virtually everyone assumes Instruction is part of that ecosystem. And instruction, at least considering the first three stages of our journey, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's all the time. So yes, it's listed last. However, an underlying purpose of a greenhouse is to be a place to explore all of the stages of our formation, particularly stages four, five, six, and the wall. It is a place to journey inward, then outward, and then into a life of love. It's a place where people experiencing the wall, this dark night of the soul, can come and explore doubts, questions, and be with others on other stages of their journey. Perhaps in a particular greenhouse, there are a few people who are still searching for God, while others have walked with him for a long time but are being drawn into a deeper intimacy with him, some at stage one, some at stage four in the wall, or even beyond. Sounds wonderful. Hey, thanks for listening. For more information on Soil and Roots and greenhouses, go to soilandroots.org. If you like the podcast, share the podcast and give it a great rating on your favorite platform. As always, you can email us at fish at soilandroots.org. We'll see you next time.